Hi, and welcome to Mohammed Bana's podcast. Today's sponsor is Global Institute of Wealth, preserving wealth for future generations. Today, we have a three-way conversation with our guest all the way from Indonesia, Prince Hassan, and a guest from Florida, Joshua Guest. Welcome, guys. Well, thanks. Thanks for having us. How are you doing? Hi, guys. Thanks, Mohammed. I'm doing pretty well. It is early morning where I'm at. Okay. And Prince Hassan, how's things in Indonesia? Yeah, it's fine. It's a bit of the end of the day here, but uh, it's fine. Okay. So this is a first for the podcast, having someone five, six hours on the east, someone else five, six hours on the west. So it's really becoming a global Institute of Wealth podcast. (laughs) Indeed it is. Congrats on that. Thanks. Thanks. So... Uh, Joshua's got uh, a LinkedIn and a website called Hi-Fi Corp, uh, Crypto, and Prince Hassan is uh, got a website called Coin Exams. All the listeners should go and check it out. We'll put the links uh, below once we publish this podcast. So, guys, hitting the news is uh, Turkey. Turkey's inflation. Let's talk about that. Who wants to go first? So yeah, it's, for me, it's a bit interesting if I can go over that. So uh, I mean, because uh, a lot of I have a lot of friends uh, in the Middle East and a lot of them, when I talk to them about hyperinflation, all this, you already know in the people, the look the people give you if they don't understand crypto or like the, the fiat system itself. A lot of people don't understand how the fiat system works. So they will think you're just mumbling. Even some people don't really grasp the idea about inflation itself, like uh, like let's not even discuss about hyperinflation if you even discuss about inflation itself uh it's uh, it's a pretty crazy idea that you're losing uh your savings at uh, rates like at least two or three percent previously maybe yes. so now the idea that uh that we everyone who, uh, who is studying the the facts have been warning about the hyperinflation is already here Uh, Smaller countries have already uh, had this before and even countries which is considered to some uh, maybe like uh, unique situations or a political thing, like for example, Venezuela and others. But now we we got Lebanon, I think a few months back. And then at that point in time, the people even couldn't withdraw their funds. So it's not even you're losing your saving uh, value, but you cannot even access your savings. So we have like uh, the idea that uh, it's not only about the store of value, it's also you cannot even control your own uh, savings. And then if we, if we go to the to Turkey, I mean, so at that point in time, when we spoke to anyone from the Middle East around Lebanon, so uh, they would say that, oh, it's just a small country. Don't worry, the bigger countries are, are never gonna be uh, affected by this and the system works, yeah, right? So so when you see Turkey, it's, it's almost the biggest economy in the whole region, uh, having almost 100% hyperinflation at this point uh, is crazy. Uh, and it, God knows, like, until w- where is is gonna go? I mean, it looks like it's gonna go even worse uh, and worse. It's like there is no way to stop it uh, at the moment, uh, or doesn't look to be. So yeah, it's a pretty scary things. And uh, I mean, at least we can use this one to 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 suggest for the people to to look for alternatives because the idea that your system is perfect is not really true right now, and you can everyone can see it. Hmm. You know where I find the challenge coming, right, guys? Let's just step back for a minute. I'm sure all three of us have more than 1,000 or 2,000 hours of crypto knowledge and Bitcoin knowledge, okay? 
what's happening is when I'm publishing the, uh, the, the podcast and I'm sending it out on WhatsApp groups and whatnot, a lot of people have not yet delved into Bitcoin itself, but they're listening to the podcast. So we need to, uh, you know, sometimes just step back and explain to people that, listen, inflation is a real thing and it might not be happening in your city or your country and you and you it's creeping upon you very slowly so even in south africa there is inflation and how how i i measure it i mean normally you get a basket index okay but i you just look at the price of a car example if it's a vw golf what was the price two years ago what was the price a year ago and what's the price of the vw golf today you know or you have a hamburger mcdonald's hamburger index you know so where, where I'm getting with this is that inflation is a real thing. And people have heard it in the past. Oh, there was hyperinflation in Zimbabwe or there's hyperinflation in Venezuela. But what's been happening is it's becoming more real, more often. It's not a once in a 10 year story or a once in a 20 year story. And it's not only in war torn countries. Like Turkey is not at war right now that they're going through inflation. Correct or wrong? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like they have, like, obviously, they have some wars, but like they are like the U.S., so they are going to wars in other countries, but their country is very stable, uh, uh, like everything considered. So it's not about the politics, and the politically also it's, uh, it's kind of stable. So it's just about the economy, how the economy works, how the bonds and all this fractional reserve system. So there is a lot of factors that the people don't. Uh, maybe uh, we need to enlighten the people and talk more about. So it, it can come to light and uh, yeah. Joshua, let, let's, let's get Joshua to put a comment in here. Joshua, for those people that don't know anything about inflation, what could you start off and let's educate the people. Yeah, so first off, I mean, my initial thought is inflation is happening everywhere that there's a fiat currency. There is a website and I don't have the URL unfortunately right now, but there's a website that is a U.S. debt clock. So it's essentially tracking how much the U.S. government's budget deficit is in any given moment. And if you sit on that website for more than a few seconds, you're going to notice that that clock is going up by thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars a second. Mm -hmm. And what that means is the U.S. government is always spending money, right? Any part of the day, any part of the year, always spending money. Now, the U.S. is one of the largest economies in the world. So perhaps it makes sense that it's spending lots and lots of money every single second. But that doesn't mean that a much smaller country isn't also doing the same thing on a much smaller scale. So inflation in that sense, right? Inflation meaning governments spending more money than they have, that is happening all the time. Now, there are a few different ways to think about inflation, right? The government wants us to focus on price inflation, which is essentially your Mercedes or your Big Mac or your carton of eggs at the grocery store is increasing in price. And they want you to believe that that is the only inflation that matters, the only inflation that exists, because that is something that they can easily blame on other factors, right? They can say, oh, there's a, you know, a, a chicken illness ravaging different parts of the world right now. And so that's why eggs are so much more expensive and why chicken is so much more expensive is because the supply of chickens mm. has been damaged. Or with gas, they can say, oh, you know, no one was driving a year ago. And so that's why gas prices were so, you know, cheap comparatively. And then they can say tons of people are traveling now 
Uh, and so that's why gas prices is going up. And to a certain degree, that is true. Supply and demand, of course, is the basic function of economics. So it certainly does contribute to uh, price fluctuations. But what governments leave out is that those price fluctuations resolve themselves, right? Prices for eggs go up, and so people buy fewer eggs until the egg supply recovers. And by buying fewer eggs, that brings the price of the eggs that are currently being supplied down because there's lower demand, right? So essentially, supply is impacted, but then demand is impacted until a new price equilibrium is reached. Same thing with gas, right? Gas prices go up, more people take buses, more people take bicycles, more people walk, fewer people drive, and so demand eventually evens out with supply to find a new price equilibrium. Governments want you to think that price inflation is this specter that can be completely blamed on everyone but the government itself. Now, the inflation that we typically talk about in the Bitcoin space is currency inflation, which is quite simply money printing, printing of money that didn't exist before. And it is unfortunately not exclusively a characteristic of fiat. Most currencies around the world, including a lot of cryptocurrencies, unfortunately, have quite a bit of currency inflation. Now, why does that matter? Because essentially, when you print money, no economic value is being created or destroyed. You are just quite simply willing, if you're a government, willing new money into an existence, which means you are stealing because that money has value, right? It's backed by a government, and so people accept it, but it did not create any new value. So you're simply reassigning value from someone else, from a saver, from an investor, from everyone else in the economy, and you're assigning it to yourself as the person in control of the money printer. That is, in reality, the primary driver of the long-term currency devaluations that we're seeing, right? It's not supply and demand. Supply and demand hasn't driven prices to you know, increase by hundreds of times over the last hundred years, not at all. Again, prices will find a new equilibrium, new technologies will come out that will reduce the cost of making things. So generally prices tend to decrease all things equal as technologies improve. But unfortunately governments continue to expand the money supply, not just here in the US, but around the world. They print money like there's no tomorrow. And when you introduce money endlessly and you never really reduce the supply of money, or even hold the supply of money constant, it's just natural that prices are going to go up because you are not creating economic value. You are simply producing more of the monetary instrument used to repossess the economic value that currently exists. So that was quite a bit. And uh, certainly, I think we can dive a little bit more into that if we'd like. But I think it's most important for readers to understand that currency inflation and currency devaluation is really what is impacting their wallets, their sanity, their quality of life on a long-term basis. It's not simple supply and demand imbalances that work themselves out after a few weeks or a few months or a couple of years. Uh, if you, excuse me, like, if I can play the, the counter argument. So as you said, like the, they will blame it on a, on a specific uh, reason and then they will tell you, okay, this is because that is not because printing money. But if you look at something like gas prices, I mean, historically speaking, or at least in recent history, uh, it usually when shots up just like because of some events and then it cools down. So they will claim that maybe uh, it will cool down anyway. So why need to worry about it? Uh, so what do you think we should uh, say to that? Yeah, you know, gas prices here in the United States have really fluctuated between two and a half 
dollars and four and a half dollars for most of the last 20 to 25 years for most of essentially my life uh, is is what i'm getting at and governments might or other you know critics of the whole currency devaluation argument might say oh well you know if if the currency was really being devalued then gas would be extremely you know much more expensive than it is and it would be growing over the past 20 years and the rebuttal to that comment is what I said about technology, right? I mean, think about 10 years ago, there was a huge explosion in the available supply of gas because someone invented fracking, which I won't pretend I'm an expert on. I know very little about fracking uh, in general. But what I do know is that there was this massive amount of new supply and new technology essentially made it easier to find and pull oil out of the gas, out of the ground to be refined into gas. So the reason that a lot of things don't increase in price as the dollar or as you know whatever currency around the world your listeners may be using as that currency is being printed. The reason that things don't go up commensurately is because people are always inventing newer technologies, better technologies to provide services that we had before more cheaply or outright replace those goods and services with things that are better. So it's really impossible to take a basket of goods like most governments do to try and measure inflation, because quite simply what they're not accounting for is the fact that technologies improve, right? They're trying to take you know, credit from improving technology to say, hey, our currency isn't devaluing because the basket of goods isn't increasing as much as we're printing money. No, technologies improve, but government's that, printing money- That's a money. very interesting concept. I never thought about uh, this, this way. I think, yeah, it makes total sense. Because the, then a lot of things, the prices, uh, like for example, if you look at the basic things like bread and uh, the agricultural stuff, we invented like through the last decades, like a uh, huge transformation in how it's produced. So it should have reduced in price dramatically. I mean, food uh, should have been like, cheap, uh, like almost free at this point. But the, the fact that it's increased in price, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. And so that's why it doesn't make any sense that we've been suffering under fiat currencies for decades. Because, I mean, as you just hinted on, things should be decreasing in price. Things should be decreasing in price forever. Mm. When you are accounting for them in a sound monetary instrument like Bitcoin, you'll notice that they do decrease in price and likely will forever. I mean, there's a common meme that I see on Twitter and elsewhere on social media where it shows a grocery basket and it shows the grocery basket, you know, it has $20 underneath the grocery basket. Yes. And, you know, and, and it shows it over time. It's like over time, right? Your $20 of groceries goes from a full basket. And then 10 years later, it gives you half of a basket. And then 10 years after that, your $20 gives you an apple instead of a full basket of groceries. And then it does the opposite for Bitcoin because as Bitcoin has gone through time, its purchasing power has grown Exponentially. Okay, but how do you answer for the argument that uh, without inflation, nobody will spend their money? So some people argue I, like I, this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. It's it's funny because I actually had someone on Reddit uh, ask me that question or make that argument earlier today. So very, it comes up very frequently. So people are not spending their Bitcoin right now because of FOMO. That means fear of missing out. Essentially. Bitcoin has increased in value exponentially in the last 13 years, and yet it's only being used by tens of millions of people. And it's meaning there are literally billions more people. Do, do you know how many likely. people, do, do we know an idea of how many people are 
you know, have adopted Bitcoin? How he, uh, is there a number that you have in mind? Like there's 7 I billion don't. people in the world. Do you know how many million? You know, there are estimates that a lot of big institutions and, you know, some of the researchers in the crypto space have made. And that's where that's where I get my numbers, you know, tens of millions. I mean, a lot of people would want to look at the number of, you know, Bitcoin addresses total or the number of active Bitcoin addresses. But because a person can hold one or many Bitcoin addresses, it's really you can't just say, oh, there's 100 million Bitcoin addresses or there's 200 million Bitcoin addresses. So there are 200 million people using Bitcoin. Yeah. No, because, you know, a lot of those are owned by exchanges or they're owned by, you know, people like you and me who have three or four different Bitcoin addresses for whatever reason. So I don't know the exact amount, but without a doubt, the vast majority, right, 90%, 95%, the vast majority of people in the world are not using Bitcoin, whether to speculate, whether to invest, whether to hold it, whether to use it as a currency, most people aren't using it. So the reason that people aren't spending their Bitcoin right now is because as Bitcoin continues to get adopted over the next several years or maybe even several decades, the purchasing power of your Bitcoin is going to increase exponentially, I believe, because there will be so many more people willing to trade you what they produce in order to buy it. So that's kind of why there's so much hodling behavior right now is because simply Bitcoin has not reached its equilibrium price, it's equilibrium going back to supply versus demand, because there's a fixed supply of Bitcoin. There will only ever be 21 million. That is coded in stone. But you've got billions more people who are going to demand Bitcoin over the coming years. And so if supply doesn't move and demand increases exponentially, price, meaning value per coin, is also increasing exponentially. So that's why people aren't spending their Bitcoin right now, largely. There are some people who spend Bitcoin, such as people using it for remittances. But by and large, most people are hodling their Bitcoin if they're not using it to, to day trade, to speculate. Now, getting back to, are people ever going to spend their Bitcoin? Yes, of course they are, right? Your Bitcoin is, no, is, is of, of no use to you if you die because you don't buy any food or because you live under a rock because you choose to save your Bitcoin rather than buying a house. So what I'm getting at is once Bitcoin does reach that equilibrium level, once people are using Bitcoin daily rather than using fiat currencies, they're going to be spending their Bitcoin on things they need, just like they spend their fiat on things they need now. Because no matter how rich you are, you still have to eat, you still have to wear clothes, you still have to live somewhere. And so people are going to value certain things more than they value money just as they do today. Now, the difference is in today's fiat world where your money is literally, I mean, uh, you know, in Turkey, Prince, I think you said 100% inflation. Uh, this almost, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's 80%, 80% yeah. going to 100, yeah. Maybe tomorrow it will be 100. So yeah, fast. close to 100% in Turkey or 8%, uh, around 8% in the U.S., you are losing money no matter what fiat you're holding. So your incentive is, hey, if my fiat is worth more today, I can buy more today than I can buy a week from now or a year from now. You are naturally incentivized, even if you don't know it, to buy something with your fiat because things are going to cost more in fiat terms the longer you wait. That's not the case with Bitcoin, right? As we already discussed, Bitcoin has a fixed supply and there are more people who are accepting it every day. So over time, your Bitcoin is going to be worth more. So it is going to, by holding Bitcoin, you are disincentivized by wasting 
your Bitcoin on things that are not worth your Bitcoin. So again, there are things that you have to have, things that will always so we, be valued. So we would say that maybe uh, owning Bitcoin will uh, maybe uh, level the market. So all the, the goods and services that's uh, luxury or in the category for the maybe unnecessary will be less, uh, less sought after, maybe? I think there are going to be huge economic upheavals when we move from a weak fiat system to a strong fiat, Bitcoin system. And the reason for that simply Your, is... The, the consumerism economy, it might change a little bit if people are thinking... Change, it's going to change drastically because if you have money that is going to be worth more a year from now than it is today, are you going to buy tons of extra clothes that you don't need? Clothes that are, you know, they're in season now. And so, okay, my money is going to be worth less next year. I might as well just buy it now because what else am I going to spend my money on before it devalues? Or, you know, going out and buying the 200,000 Lamborghini, right, instead of a $20,000 car. Now, there are still going to be people who buy Lamborghinis because but they, they value, it. well, because they value, yeah, they can afford it. But more importantly, they value a Lamborghini for whatever reason, more than they value Bitcoin once we reach this equilibrium price. There is still going to be discretionary spending. People are just going to be able to make a conscious decision. Do I value extra clothes? Do I value a Lamborghini? Do I value a vacation to Bermuda more than I value my Bitcoin and the fact that it's going to increase in purchasing power over time? Actually, it's, it's, uh, it's more like the people will be faced with reality. So right now, if you look at the credit card bubbles uh, everywhere, so people are spending money. They're not even spending their money right now. At this point, most countries, they are spending money they don't have to buy luxurious things they don't need. So uh, why? Because they, they, they cannot realize the value of money. I mean, money doesn't have any value for them. They feel like it's useless. So uh, they might as well spend it. But when money has value, like something like Bitcoin, then uh, it's yeah, it's, it's going to improve. Yeah, you have an incentive to save something to measure, like a matrix against it, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think, I mean, can you imagine the stress if you've got a uh, hundred thousand liras, uh, Turkish liras, or a million liras, right? And you had it at the beginning of the year. Now you're sitting with this million liras. You have a decision. I mean, as you're saying, you can spend recklessly or let's say on luxuries you can be changing your car you can be going for a vacation or uh, you leave that money in the bank but just leaving it in the bank not spending it is still devaluing right like you're saying mm -hmm. 70 80 percent uh, the alternatives is finding a store of value and that's where our point of uh, you know buying even if they just bought US dollars and left it in US dollars would have been better than leaving it in a Turkish lira, okay? Yeah, but I argue against fiat at all because a lot of- No, no I know that, right? I'm saying- I recommend you buying the US dollar, but what's guarantee that the US dollar is not going to have something similar? I, I see that as-, as, as, as not really second, I see that as the second part where I'm saying, had they moved it to US dollars, it would, wouldn't have devalued. But the question then comes, what are the people in the United States doing with all their US dollars? They're looking for alternative to the US dollar because their currency is also being devalued, okay? So the whole world, like uh, we always benchmark the South African Rand against the US dollar. Anywhere you go, if it's the Saudi Rial, you benchmark it on the US dollar. But what happens is we need to look at, because of the money printing in USA, 
And they've printed what, like 60, 70% of all US dollars in circulation in the last four years or something like that, right? Trillions, trillions of dollars they printed, yep. Yeah, I think they're more than $30 trillion in debt now. And uh, it, what are the rich, the way I look at it, for the, for the first time in, in many years, or let's say in our lifetime, where we can sit in any country, go on YouTube or on Twitter, pick the most, uh, I'm going to say most well-to-do people, like multi-billionaires, someone like Michael Saylor, someone like Max Kaiser, people that are worth more than $10, million, $10 billion, and look at what they are choosing to store their cash reserves in. Okay, And that, that's what I found fascinating on my journey, being here in Durban, in South Africa, not even in a major city like Johannesburg, but having Twitter and YouTube and using first principles thinking to say, listen, assume you know nothing about money. Now, do you want to learn? Go learn from the best. And Twitter's really been a game changer for me. I don't know how if you guys have felt the same way, picking up insight from people on the international stage. What, what's your opinion of Twitter? Did you find you learn a lot on Twitter? I've learned a fair amount by surfing on Twitter, I suppose. Uh, I spend a lot of time on social media connecting with people. A lot of the content is good on Twitter. The reason I hesitate a little bit is because, of course, a lot of the content on social media is unfortunately not good. So it's, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily give a clean badge, a clean stamp of approval for social media. Uh, because I want people to do their own research. I want people to look at things parsimoniously, right? So don't just, if someone, I mean, even if, you know, Max Kaiser or Michael Saylor says something, you know, or Elon Musk, Elon Musk has probably almost 100 million followers on Twitter right now. Just because someone says something on Twitter or just because someone says something on the internet, of course, don't take them at their word. Go and do your own research, form your own opinions. I I talk on the internet all the time. I'm active on social media. As you pointed out, I have my Bitcoin educational newsletter where I publish a couple of times a week my thoughts on Bitcoin, the space, and current events around the space. But I don't even want you to just take my word for it, right? I want people who come and read my articles to use that as a jumping off point. Because if someone is just trusting me and my opinion or just trusting Michael Saylor and his opinion, they're kind of losing out on the whole point of Bitcoin, which is self-sovereignty, the ability for us to make conscious decisions for ourselves, whether that's about money or family or education or employment, whatever it is, our ability to make our own decisions and have those decisions play out without interference from a corporation or a government or anyone. So I like social media, but still do your own research in a lot of, a lot of areas, not just crypto Twitter. No, I, I agree. I think Twitter's not the same. Crypto Twitter's not the same it was in 2020. But I, I think where I was aiming at the fact that using technology, even YouTube, listening to podcasts, mm -hmm. doing your research, doing online courses, there's a lot of free courses, like even sailor.org has a course, Bitcoin for Everyone, which I've done, uh, doing an MIT course. Uh, having access to the internet your unlimited uh, knowledge base. You know, there's unlimited knowledge. So people should use the technology we have because there's 7 billion people in the world now with 5 billion mobile phones, okay? And uh, that is 
a level we've never been on. So information is transferring at a pace and a speed like never before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very true. What do you think, Hassan? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's uh, it's best if you find uh, the experts in the, in the on the matter, and if you search, uh, then after that, if you search also for yourself to understand the concepts and how everything works, uh, it's best. Yeah, like for example, you study about the fraction resolve, has, how does it work, and instead of like uh, agreeing or disagreeing directly uh, with the inflation statements. So yeah. And if you, we can go back to inflation or what do you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah, go back to inflation. I'm actually okay, going, so, to call, I'm going to call up. So I believe actually uh, Bitcoin price uh, might, like the volatility, like right now, I think one of the reasons people are not using Bitcoin, just from my perspective, is the volatility. Because let's say, for example, I'm charging for a service or a product. It's very hard to price it in Bitcoin. So even the, the people accepting Bitcoin today, I don't know if anyone is accepting Bitcoin and uh, like pricing, the, putting the price tag in Bitcoin. Most of people are just putting it in fiat. And then when you when it comes time to pay, then you give you the market price. So I think this needs to change. And I think it will happen automatically because I have seen it in something else, uh, like another crypto, which has the like a massive, also massive following, obviously not as Bitcoin, but yeah. So uh, what happens is at certain moment after a, uh, the adoption uh, gains pace, then people start to uh, use the, the currency a lot. When they start to use the currency a lot, the price itself stabilized, so the volatility will reduce. And when the volatility reduces, it's like a, a cycle. So people who are pricing their product, they will be more comfortable pricing it in Bitcoin. And then and, uh, and people will be more willing to spend their Bitcoin because the, the price is not uh, volatile as much. So they can expect, for example, because uh, think about it right now, it's very scary thought that you spend your Bitcoin and then tomorrow is going to uh, go up to 10 or 20 percent. But if you know, for example, yeah, it's going up, but it's going up like on a steady pace, uh, like relative steady pace. It's actually the same as fiat. If you think about it, fiat, well, why everyone loved fiat during the last century? Because it was going uh, down on a steady pace. So as long as there is predictability, people are willing to use their their. Uh, their coins or yeah so i think bitcoin i think this is a matter of time uh before big people start to price stuff in in bitcoin and also use it to pay i think this is a good point that you brought up is the fact that people aren't you know they're 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 just really looking for predictability i really like uh the way you said that because yeah right now there's a lot of speculation that's, that bitcoin is being used for Right. There are a lot of people who don't really understand Bitcoin outside of the speculative viewpoint. They think it's an investment. And so just like when their stocks get crushed or when their bonds, you know, <laughs> change, change in price, people react when they see the Bitcoin price going up or going down and they FOMO in or they FOMO out. Hmm. So that is why there's such volatility is because there is a lot of speculative use within the Bitcoin space. And just to, just to clarify things, there's a lot of speculative use within fiat as well, because we all know that there are massive foreign exchange markets, trillions of dollars being exchanged back and forth daily. That's a lot of that is speculation. The difference is within government there within fiat, there's a government controlling the, you know, the predictability 
of the currency also the share. and extracting, mean, the share extracting the value for themselves. Within Bitcoin, there is no central party extracting value or manipulating the price. But also the, the speculative, price. like if you look at the market share for the speculation in the trades or in the transfers, let's say, uh, the, it's almost 90%, uh, I, I don't know the number, but it's, it could be up to 90% specu speculative. So I, like you said, most people are putting it as an investment. They're not really considering it as money. So when people Correct. start to understand its actual concept, that it's money, then uh, it's, it's going to smooth out everything. I agree completely, because right now, most Bitcoin are used for one of two things, speculation or hodling, right? Holding onto your Bitcoin and not spending it. There is a small amount of actual exchanges happening denominated in Bitcoin, small relative, right? Because again, yeah. the economies, global economies, uh, move trillions of dollars daily. So I mean, small in that context, in the context of trillions of dollars. But Bitcoin that are being held in someone's wallet, not for sale, those aren't really impacting the price, right? So what is pricing Bitcoin on a day-to-day -day basis is the Bitcoin that are actively moving back and forth, which right now are Bitcoin being used for speculation. So when speculation, when people are speculating that Bitcoin's going to go up, they're buying into it and the price skyrockets. When people are speculating that the price of Bitcoin is going to go down, they FOMO out and they just kind of contribute to all of this Bitcoin volatility. But exactly what you're getting at, Prince, is once people, once Bitcoin reaches its equilibrium price and all of these holders, all of these hodlers start spending their Bitcoin, which might not be this year, might not be five years from now. I don't know when it will happen, but it will happen eventually when Bitcoin reaches its equilibrium value. Then all of a sudden, Bitcoin is going to be free flowing from a much bigger base of the supply than it is now. You're not going to have one or two million Bitcoin that are active. You're going to have much more. Because the volatility is a factor of uh, not enough actually liquidity. So if there is enough liquidity, volatility will be impossible. Because think about it, like, for example, uh, yeah. someone is dropping down a, a billion dollars of Bitcoin this minute. Obviously, the price is going to tank. But if if someone else is, needs to buy this one billion in the same second, so there is going to be an equilibrium, and uh, and because of the limited supply, then this factor alone is uh, sufficiently uh, reasonable enough for the price to to increase steadily. But uh, the volatility in between is uh, like, like basically the factor of the number of users uh, coupled with the uh, like the limited supply. These two. Uh, will increase the price in my opinion but uh, the factor uh, of people who are actually needing the the bitcoin uh, is uh, for their own like for their own transactions not for speculation then this will uh, stabilize the price so then adoption will accelerate uh, phenomenally so yeah. yeah i think the other thing that we need to mention okay is that every four years there's a halving in the daily supply reward supply that comes onto the network okay so currently there's 900 bitcoin get released into the world to all miners to share so let's say all miners servers are sharing this 900 coins in the next halving it's going to be uh, in 2024 drop to 450 so what happens now all these miners still have the same labor cost which is fixed and the same electricity cost which will be fixed. Obviously, they're aiming for cheaper electricity and alternative energy, but uh, nobody's going to sell their Bitcoin at a loss. They rather hold it 
and uh, as you're saying, ask a market fair value. So, I mean, there's a saying that the algorithms designed for Bitcoin to pump, okay? And you'd notice there's a four-year cycle. Uh, every time there's a halving, there's a bull run that follows after it. So um, I think the four-year cycle is important to note. I think honestly, I mean, uh, I, I think it's going, it's, yeah, this is correct, but I think this, uh, the value of the halving cycle is going to diminish, not least because the inflation, it's, it's going to, the value or like the impact rather, not the value, but rather the impact of the halving cycle is going to diminish because, uh, not least because the inflation itself is reducing. So uh, although Bitcoin is the, ha have a capped supply, maximum supply, but there is some inflation that's being halved every four years years uh, almost so i think uh i mean as as we go i mean right now it's almost two percent but later on it's gonna diminish further and further so the shock to the supplies is gonna uh it's gonna be negligible compared to the the selling activity or the trading activities so i i, I think the that's why right now actually we should have had uh, the all-time highs uh, the actual all-time highs uh I mean around the last few months but we didn't we had a bear market so actually this bear market, in my opinion, it looks very similar to uh, the, 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 the tiny bear markets, which we had before, before the actual all-time highs. So I think uh, even the, 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 there is a theory out there, like people who are like love technical analysis. So they would say that there is like a lengthening cycle. So it's not really going to follow the, the having cycle like it has been doing. So just as my opinion, I don't know. So what do you think, Josh? Yeah, I think that the, I agree that the halving impact is going to decrease over time because, I mean, I tend to not think too much of the 900 Bitcoin coming, you know, coming into existence, supposedly. I don't really think of that as inflation because I think of inflation as creation of money that didn't exist yesterday or didn't exist five minutes ago. And that's not the case with Bitcoin. We've known that there are 21 million Bitcoin since Satoshi Nakamoto first released the software 13 years ago. We've known there have been 21 million Bitcoin and there are still 21 million Bitcoin. What's happening is simply a distribution of those Bitcoin rather than rewarding himself and everyone else, you know, the handful of other coders, the handful of other libertarians who were around back then, rather than just distributing all 21 million to those eight people, he decided that he or she or they, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is, decided that it would be appropriate to set up this whole halving situation, this daily distribution, so that it would not just be distributed on day one to developers and early entrants, which is exactly what we see in fiat. And unfortunately, exactly what we see throughout most of crypto. So, the halvings, yes, it does. I mean, psychologically, people say, oh, well, the supply of Bitcoin is reducing. What they really mean is the distribution is slowing down because we're reaching that cap of 21 million that have been, not that exists, but that just have been released. So I, I, I guess, well, I certainly think the halving cycle is important psychologically for a lot of people. I do believe a little bit that it is the impact of the halving is, is overstated. There are really so many things outside of the halvening that also contribute to Bitcoin's, you know, 
exchange rates with, with fiat or with Ethereum or with gold or whatever you happen to be exchanging, whatever other currency or pseudo currency you happen to be exchanging your Bitcoin with. There's, and that's what, again, why Bitcoin is so volatile is because there's a very small portion of that 21 million that's actively trading hands in any given day. And that small portion is being impacted by really massive external forces. I mean, everything that's happening outside of Bitcoin, literally everything outside of, that's happening uh, outside of Bitcoin is impacting its price. Because if you have a government printing money that didn't exist before, that, those, that's driving people, citizens who understand what a terrible situation they're in towards Bitcoin. So they're buying more Bitcoin. Or if someone loses their job, just a single hodler loses their fiat job, they have less money to buy Bitcoin. So, I mean, you're really compounding Bitcoin's volatility across 8 billion people who all have different scenarios. So it's, I mean, it's, what I'm getting at is, yes, the halvening psychologically has a big impact for people, but it is, in my opinion, a relatively small component of what is buffeting Bitcoin's price on a day-to-day -day basis. Look, with all these problems that are going around the world, in example, Turkey, Venezuela, we're talking about inflation, right? Uh, the normal man on the street would ask you, so why isn't Bitcoin going up? Okay. I mean, yes, I'm a believer in Bitcoin and I see the future value, but let's answer this question to some people like why isn't uh the price of bitcoin going up where it was at all-time highs and it's at less more than 50 percent down from where it was uh if turkey is going through this problem lebanon's going through this problem venezuela's going through this problem shouldn't more people come onto uh, the bitcoin network or is it just that there's not enough knowledge out there or what is what is the answer there i think it's a couple of things i mean i won't rehash too much what i said just now but again inflation just like the halvening is only one small component of what's driving bitcoin's price right you know when when new york passes a moratorium on bitcoin mining in the state that scares people away from bitcoin and a lot of those people i mean some of them are certainly hodlers a lot of them are probably speculators right so that even though money is devaluing, people are getting scared away from Bitcoin because they wonder what else New York is going to do. We saw the same thing on a much larger scale last China. year when Bitcoin when, when Bitcoin mining was banned in China, right? The price Let's talk about that. cratered. You think of that. Do you think uh, that was a silly move on China, obviously? Do you think, uh, you know, the price would have obviously been much better had China carried on mining? I mean, I think it's a real loss for China, a real loss for New York. I mean, I won't dive too deep into New York because I'm actually releasing an article in a couple of days to analyze it. So I don't want to I don't want to give away uh, what I'm writing about. So check out my article on Friday uh, if you want to know my thoughts about New York. But essentially, by doing by putting a moratorium or by banning Bitcoin mining, first off, those bans aren't enforceable, which is what. The China ban has shown us we now have a year's worth of data and researchers are finding out that a large portion of Bitcoin's hash rate is still active within China. I don't know the exact numbers because it's been a few weeks, but, I, but they're estimating 10 to 20 percent of Bitcoin's hash rate is still in China, even though it's illegal. And the Bitcoin network is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of ASICs, millions of computers. 
And so when we talk about 10 to 20%, we are talking about either lots of underground small mining operations, people with one or two machines, or we're talking about many large institutions, likely a combination of both who are just ignoring the fact that China has banned Bitcoin mining because they value Bitcoin more than they value China's law that they disagree with. So, if, you know, first and foremost, the ban is not really enforceable, but it does drive a lot of people away from Bitcoin. And so China and New York are doing a disservice first and foremost to their own citizens because those people who get scared away from Bitcoin momentarily, because I do believe that eventually the world will move on to a Bitcoin standard, those people who are getting scared away momentarily are missing out on the opportunity to adopt Bitcoin, study Bitcoin, benefit from Bitcoin sooner than they would have otherwise. So yeah, I mean, the ban's, the ban's not really enforceable to begin with, and it's certainly not to the benefit of anyone other than the people threatened by Bitcoin success, which are the people who benefit from the fact that fiat can be printed from one second to the next with no consequences to the money printer, just consequences to everyone else. Hmm. I think the answer to the price also, like if I can also add about this. So I think that uh, it's also about the speculation. Like if you think about it, it's not being used as a currency at the moment. And a lot of people who are even into Bitcoin who or even believe they understand Bitcoin, they don't really, they just uh, in it for investment or like they thinking of it as a speculative asset. It's similar to a lot of new technologies like NFTs and whatnot. A lot of people are not thinking like in depth about it. Like for example, it's a sovereign asset. It have like a limited amount and all. They're not thinking about the long term. That's why they are actually these people would ask uh, why is the price not going up just like a few months but if you think about it the price is actually in fact going up continuously it's just the, the only problem that we're having right now is just volatility as soon as volatility evens out you can see the line is, is explain more, uh, that explain what you just said to the listeners because they might not have caught what you just said you said even though the price is not going up it actually is going up uh, explain. Yeah, that. I mean, if you think about it in the short term, obviously, uh, each day the price is different. So yeah, you can say it's going up, going down. But if you look at it from like a macro perspective, like uh, zoom out a bit, you will see that it's always going up. I mean, any if you think about it, any asset that's limited in uh, in supply, even real estate. I mean, even real estate uh, is relatively limited in supply in a lot of uh, bigger cities. It's always going up. It's very hard, uh, even if the price drops the price will soon go up again. I mean, uh, and also to say that it will always go up in terms of fiat, because as soon as the world moves away from fiat, the prices actually will stabilize and it will be uh, almost constant. That's my uh, imagination. I mean, because right now we don't have any system that replaces the fiat like globally. So I think once we reach that, then one Bitcoin, as they say, right? One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Yeah, this actually makes a lot of sense if the, the whole world is using the system and, and stable, like it's gonna increase according to what? Actually, yeah, maybe according to assets that are developing in technology, like let's say for example, cars or whatnot, yeah, the, the price is gonna be devalued compared to Bitcoin, but in general, it's price is gonna be very stable. So I think the, the only thinking about it, about fiat going down, so the people have to focus on the opposite side of the coin, which is fiat is the one who's going down. So yeah, Bitcoin may be, may be going up and it's relatively, it has to go up because there's limited uh, number of Bitcoins and the more users, 
the more value there is in the network, but uh, they have to focus on fiat, not on Bitcoin. Focus on fiat is the one going down the drain. So yeah. So yeah, and to expand just a little bit, Prince, on what you said specifically about you know store of value, right? Which is how a lot of people are using Bitcoin right now. You mentioned real estate, right? Real estate is relatively the supply of real estate is relatively fixed. The supply of gold is relatively fixed. Now, for now, they're relatively fixed, right? A hundred years ago, had you told someone, or let's say 200 years ago, had you told someone that there were someday going to be buildings 3,000 feet tall, they would have laughed at you because back then the tallest buildings were probably, you know, at most a couple of stories, right? And so 200 years ago, the supply of real estate was much more limited than it is now, right? We're getting taller buildings. I believe we'll still get taller buildings. And another component to the real estate side is if Elon Musk has his way, then he thinks that we will soon be living on the moon and soon be living on Mars and soon be living who knows where else, right? We've all watched sci-fi movies, right? So let's say even the most minimum portion of that sci-fi dream comes true, we'll have real estate elsewhere than just even on planet Earth. Again, I'm not saying one way or the other. All I'm trying to say is right now, there is a relative level of real estate. Or if you look at gold, right? Gold is pretty difficult to pull out of the ground. But again, going back to sci-fi, right? People are talking about meteors that are made of gold, asteroids that are made of gold that maybe someday, whether it's 10 years from now or 500 years from now, maybe we'll be able to pull out of the sky and the supply of gold will increase. So these other stores of value, whether you look at corporate stocks or gold or real estate or bonds, they have a relative supply cap. Meaning it's a supply cap only until it's no longer a supply cap anymore. Bitcoin, by comparison, has a fixed supply cap. On day one, you know, when the Genesis block was mined 13 years ago, there were 21 million Bitcoin. hundred and I think 120 years from now is when it's supposed to happen, when the last mineable portion, the last Bitcoin is fully mined, there will still only be 21 million Bitcoin. And in the future, past long past that, there will still only be 21 million Bitcoin. There is no relative supply cap for Bitcoin mm -hmm. like there is for most other things in the world. Mm -hmm. And so why does that matter? Simply because, you know, either as a result of this podcast or all of the other education going around, people are going to realize that everything else, almost everything else, you know, other than people's time, Everything else has a relative supply cap. That Bitcoin has a fixed supply cap. So why would you store your wealth in a house that has a good supply cap now, but might not in 10 years, when you could supply it in Bitcoin that will have the exact same supply cap until long after your life is over? So I just wanted to kind of prove the point that it's, you're not just talking about, you know, Bitcoin's better than fiat as a medium of exchange. Bitcoin is better than stores of value at being stores of value. I mean, Bitcoin, even though it's hard to see it in the day-to-day -day because of the volatility, Bitcoin is being adopted so rapidly because there are so many people understanding that Bitcoin revolutionizes and outright replaces significant portions of the economy that are very weak today because of, well, because of inferior substitutions that we've had to deal with up until Bitcoin was invented. Tell me, do you all see, obviously, uh, after El Salvador, okay, adopting Bitcoin, then there was uh, Africa Central, uh, which countries do you all think will be next? Because there was a conference happened at El Salvador and more than 40 countries were invited. Uh, what surprises me is a country like Venezuela, where 400 
percent inflation has not yet uh, adopted Bitcoin. So I'm actually looking for someone for uh, from Venezuela to come on the podcast, and I thought that'll be interesting to find out how many Venezuelans uh, use Bitcoin on a daily basis, uh, and you know what's going on on the ground there. So if you guys or the listeners know of anyone from Venezuela, I think that would be interesting because Venezuela's got one of the highest inflation rates in the world at the moment. Can you imagine like 477% or something like that? I mean, it must be increasing daily. Yeah, but I, I think it's it's more like it, it will has it will it will have a political angle to it. So if you see other countries which have inflation like Turkey, they are one of the biggest adopters of crypto uh, in the region. Uh, in the region. So I think uh, people understand crypto over there probably because they have access to internet, but it's not as easy to access because maybe there is no official exchanges that are uh, regulated. So uh, like for example, Turkey. So I think all the countries which have access to, to, the, to Bitcoin and crypto, they, people will, will, uh, will, will, will choose it. Like if you think about El Salvador, it's not like, yeah, there was some people using Bitcoin, but the political will helps in that. So either it's a democracy or somewhere where the, the political power allows for using Bitcoin. So I think the, I mean, yeah, the people can, can do it by themselves, but the, the mass adoption is pretty hard without like a government support or at least uh, like government neutrality on the, on the issue. So I think all the countries which, uh, which have government neutrality at least uh, from the uh, crypto perspective, they're gonna have a lot of adoption. So I think Venezuelan case is just because of politics, but yeah, if you can invite someone from Venezuela and give a perspective on that, it would be nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the most that governments can really do is just step out of the way, which is essentially what El Salvador and the Central African Republic have done. They just stepped out of the way because people who wanted to use Bitcoin before were using Bitcoin and people who don't want to use Bitcoin now to my knowledge, aren't being forced to use Bitcoin in those countries, right? So governments have stepped out of the way and they've given carte blanche to people to just make an economic choice. In that moment, do they value Bitcoin more or do they value the CFA fraud or do they value you know, the US dollar, which of course is the other legal tender in El Salvador? And some people still, a lot of people still value the US dollar. I mean, you kind of made the case <laughs> earlier in the podcast, Muhammad, that for a lot of fiat currencies out there, probably most fiat currencies, the US dollar is just a, a better fiat currency, right? So people are still gonna make the choice that they want. And that's really how the financial system should be. Now, I mean, I really don't speculate too much as to which country will be next because it's impossible It's impossible to know, right? I mean, most people hadn't probably even heard of Central African Republic yeah. uh, before, before it decided to make Bitcoin legal tender. I won't pretend that I knew very much about, about that country beforehand. So there are, it's, it's impossible to speculate because it can really come from anywhere. Now, I think that likely the countries who are gonna be most willing to step out of the way are the countries that are losing the most under the current fiat system. So two things come to mind, right? Central African Republic made complete sense because their legal tender is controlled based on, again, my outsider's research, is controlled by very large, I mean, it's, I believe, pegged to the Euro, which of course is a very large government conglomerate out of the European Union, as we all know. 
and then they've got like I think reserves. It's even the even the, the currency is even printed in France or something like this is so yeah, crazy. Exactly. I they, think something they have they have to. I I did a little bit of research for an article. They have to I believe hold a large portion of their national treasury with France, and then the Central African Republic. There are it's controlled by like a regional bank in Africa that has like five other members, and of course, like I mentioned, pegged to the euro. So what I'm kind of getting at is. Central African Republic has no control over their currency other than perhaps their minor say in this voting party of six. Basically, uh, with, it wasn't know, even their currency to begin with. That's what you're saying. It wasn't even, yeah, it, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't their currency to begin with, right? So they are, they have no control of the currency. And they, so they're basically being buffeted by the decisions of these other five countries in the region. Obviously, everything that the euro is going through, and then even France to, to a large degree. So I'm thinking countries in similar positions who don't have control of their own currency to begin with and who are suffering massive uh, risks, massive detriments because of the currency they're using. Now, I think those are the ones who are gonna say, well, look, we might as well step out of the way and let people who want to use Bitcoin use Bitcoin. So I think that's kind of my first guess as to who is going to step out of the way next country-wise or government-wise. It's who is who's, who's holding the bag for the money printers, right? And obviously the United States is one of the biggest, if not the biggest money printers, but you know, not just the, not just the US is, you know, really on the top of this of this global uh, economic system that we have right now, right? Obviously European countries are up there. China certainly is one of the largest economies and with all of the investment, with all of the currency that they're flushing around the world in different sections, right? There are, there are a few different winners. Obviously the US is one of the bigger ones. And so what I'm getting at is I expect those countries to probably be among the last ones to do it because they're benefiting the most. So who do I think is going to adopt Bitcoin next? Whoever is suffering the most and at the same time willing to step out of the way as government. That's that's kind of the key combination because lots of countries are are suffering uh, under the fiat system. I'd say all countries are suffering under, under the fiat systems. Which of them are willing to step out of the way? That's the component that's unforeseeable. Guys, I think we should leave today's podcast there and uh, continue on, an, on an, another episode, on another date. I'd like to thank you guys for your time. Thank you, Prince Hassan, coming all the way from Indonesia and Joshua all the way from Florida. It's been great chatting to you guys. And I'll share this link with both you guys and you can share it with your audience. And uh, whoever's listening out there, please uh, like, subscribe, give us comments, tell us what topics you'd like to hear, uh, put in the comments what you'd want us to talk about, and we'll probably have a follow-up on this discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much, Prince. Thanks. Thanks, Molly. Thank you, Prince. Thank you, Joshua. And let's stop it.